0: Hi, this is Tamsa Granger.
1: This is Dan Abuhoff.
0: With Tamsin and Dan, read the paper on Sunday, July 4th, 2021. Independence Day.
1: Independence Day. And in honor of Independence Day, we have a special guest, and that is...
0: Sadie Abuhoff. Hello! Who has come up here from the sunny south.
1: Right, and now she's in the sunny north on uh, July 4th. Sunny 4th for the moment. Yeah, it's
0: a nice day today, really. Yeah. Nice day today. We should... Uh, Little shout out to Oscar Granger, my brother's brother, Bryce's first grandson, grandson, right? Yeah, grandson Here we go. turned two today, oh, July fourth. Real milestone. Happy birthday, Oscar! Yes, happy yes, okay. There you go.
1: Congratulations. Um, so uh, to get things uh, going, because uh, we don't let grass grow under our feet when Sadie is around. We went to the cinema yesterday with Sadie. Yes, this is
0: our first time back in the theater. Right. Uh, Sadie has been...
2: My second time back. I went to In the Heights yeah. in the theater. Right.
0: No masks, no nothing.
1: Very nice. We are at Doylestown. They've renovated that theater. They had plenty of time to do the renovation while the world shut down. And uh, it's looking good. It's looking good. So Summer of Soul was a movie that I guess I'm the one who spotted during This is the... what we went to see. Yes. Okay. Uh, Uh, it's called Summer of Soul or The Revolution Will Not Be Televised. I can't understand the second line, but that's part of the title. Uh, It's
2: called a subtitle.
1: A subtitle. Still (laughs) don't understand it, but thank you. Uh, And, um, it's about, uh, the Harlem Cultural Festival, which was a series of concerts that took place in 1969 in Harlem. Six concerts.
0: Who made the film?
1: Uh, Questlove was the director of the film. Just, just... Getting all the facts. I handle all the information.
2: Also known as the drummer of the Roots. Is that right? Also known as the drummer of the house band for Jimmy Fallon.
1: Yeah. Okay. Good. So back to the movie. So it's a, uh, it's you know it's a uh, concert movie, right? Uh, For six, uh, I guess six performances, uh, one every week during the summer of 1969. uh, You had. I don't know, a mix of, uh, what what would you call it? Basically, Motown, gospel, and even a little outside of that, uh, in a free concert at which each concert attended by thirty or 40,000 people in Harlem. Uh, And even though it took place some time ago in 1969, what people apparently had lost sight of was that there was film of the concert. And what Questlove did is he put together the film of, of the six different concerts, and uh, came up with this film of what happened there. And and it's not just a matter of showing uh, various acts uh, during the six concerts, uh, but it's also a lot of uh, material that is uh, weaved woven around this, I should say, having to do with what was going on in the country at the time, in particular with respect to the black population, in particular with respect to Harlem.
0: Well, we should point out, this was the Harlem Cultural Festival. Right. Okay, and as you said, it was like, Six weeks long, right? And uh, I, it, I didn't research that. Yeah, I did, but it, but it also seemed to include. It was musical acts. It also seemed to include comedy. Well,
1: it, very little. Uh, you know, uh, when you're watching it, and you don't really know uh, if you're seeing everything, or a small part of it, or, or what else is there. The truth is, you got to see almost everything. In other words, each concert was three acts, really, pretty much. So it wasn't, wasn't like 20 or 30 in, over, it was more, it was under 20 over the sixth. And I looked at the names and we saw almost everything, 80%. Okay. Uh, there was a comedian or two, George Kirby, for example, okay. appeared at one of the concerts. You saw, uh, he's not in the film. Moms Mabley was in the film. So they had a, some comedians, but it was basically uh, music.
2: Well, one thing you haven't mentioned yet is it's the same summer as Woodstock. Yes. So that's one of the themes throughout is that Woodstock happened and that's, you know, notorious for various reasons and then nobody talks about the Harlem Cultural right.
1: Festival. All right, let me come back to that cuz I think that's a very important point. I think that's worth dwelling I, on.
0: I, but but let's go I'm sorry. I just also want to mention it was in a park. Yeah. Okay. And so it was and it was during daylight. There were no lights. Yeah. That was one of the problems with the filming. Oh, is that right? That was right. one of the challenges. Okay, I didn't realize that. And, um, and so it was really a community event. Okay. Sure. And uh, people could walk to it, etc. It wasn't It wasn't like Woodstock in the sense where you were oh, no, coming yeah. from it's all not, over the country. Like it was a Harlem right. event. Right. Well, let's, let's, yeah, let's go to Woodstock in just
1: a second because it's very different from Woodstock. But let, first of all, I'll just say I, I enjoyed the film a great deal. Uh, and I think you guys did too. yes. And you, and and just to, so people know what we're talking about. Here are the kind of people who were there. It opens with Stevie Wonder, Stevie Wonder playing the drums of all things. Uh, but it has uh, Mavis Staples. It was Mahalia Jackson. It is the Fifth Dimension. Uh, it is Sly and the Family Stone. Uh, it has um, David Ruffin, who was the lead singer of the Temptations.
2: Gladys Knight and the Pips.
1: Gladys Knight and the Pips and. Uh,
2: Jesse Jackson, a lot of Jesse
1: Jackson. Yeah, that I could do without. But yes, it has that too. But he's not singing. He
2: he's was not so good looking
0: though. He,
1: I'm not saying he's not good looking. I'm not going to fight you on that.
0: Boy, yeah. well, you are... it have to
1: be yeah. a singer.
2: Also, I enjoyed the, like what he brought to the table. Did you right. He was like... He, he had a whole kind of theatrical thing going on with a specific message. Yeah. And, and. the fact that he could make that message interesting... By weaving in the gospel singers and uh, you know, the musicians I, I, and the saxophonists. I, well, I, I, I will say that.
0: He must, he, he must have plots after that. Like Because that was happen. amazing. Yeah. You know, he's up there. Plots? Yes, because he's up there giving his speech and, you know, he's working the crowd. Yeah. And uh, as Sadie said, weaving in the gospel music. Yeah. And, of course, uh, the The, saxophonist. Real, the uh, the highlight of it becomes this. Uh, All right, but you know, let's let's back up a little
1: bit again to be more specific. So I looked at the program. So Jackson was there during one of the six concerts, but the one of the six concerts he was at is, as you mentioned, is the one which had Mavis Staples and Mahalia Jackson.
0: It's a tribute to Martin Luther King, right? Uh, well, that and wasn't
2: Malcolm X because Malcolm, and Malcolm X is in. from Ma- uh, Harlem, New
1: York. Yeah, Harlem, and fine, and uh, and that is in many ways the high point of the movie. The Mavis Staples, Mahalia Jackson duet, if you will. And you're absolutely right. And he brought the, 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 that. The, I the, mean, Jackson he, frames that.
0: He frames that. He crafts listen, that. Listen, I think
1: Jackson was a great speaker. And I will tell you, I remember even 10 years after that, 15 years after when he spoke at the Democratic National Convention, in the same convention that Mario Cuomo spoke the next night, if you recall, great speeches. Very inspiring speaker. I, I have other issues with Jesse Jackson.
0: I understand, okay. but you said you could have lived without. I mean, he recounted
2: he recounted the day that Martin Luther King Jr. Yeah, right. was shot. But I wouldn't and
0: credit that entirely. That,
2: yeah, but that's information that nobody else knew. Actually,
1: I, I, let me Just back. to His you.
2: personal account. To an an issue. Next an day. issue
1: has arisen since then, saying that that is not a true account. An Jackson's. Nonetheless,
0: nonetheless, to see how. He told the story, worked the crowd, okay.
1: Yeah, all right. You Fine.
0: know, made this um, crescendo okay. happen.
2: It's not like he was telling farcical things. He was saying, we walked from here to there. Yeah. MLK wanted to get food next. No, right. It wasn't some crazy story. No. It was just relating MLK to the rest of the crowd.
1: Yeah, okay. I don't want to get into what's disputed about Jesse Jackson and Martin Luther King. Let's bypass that. I think the point that you're both making, which is fair, is that... He was making a very effective presentation in the context. Yes, he's clearly charismatic. I don't deny that for a second. But I think just to put front and center, what should be front and center, that's Mahalia Jackson and David Staples, which which was a fantastic duet. And in, in the particular performance, which must have been that evening, that afternoon must have been about gospel as much as anything else. Each each afternoon had a different theme, pretty much. And there were a couple of other gospel uh, singers besides. But uh,
0: well, they sang. Oh, Precious Lord. Yes. And, uh, um, which is, of course, a great classic. Right. And, and they said
2: it was MLK's favorite. When yeah. Tied uh, into the whole theme.
0: Sure. Yeah. And, uh, but, uh, still, I mean, uh, it wouldn't, the performance, you you wouldn't get, I think, as much uh, enjoyment out of that performance without the whole framing to see right. how well, look, it I all think, came to I pain. think the, the, the
1: the first two thirds of the movie in particular is edited extremely well, right? They're not just showing what went on. He's editing and putting together the various pieces. So he's putting in, you know, the right amount of intro. Uh, He's putting in the right performances or, you know, what looked to us like the right performances. And it's extremely good. It's extremely effective. And not just, I don't want to just dwell on this. I thought the, uh, the Fifth Dimension piece was... Fantastic. The story they told about the fifth dimension. And, uh, and, and it, one wonderful thing about this movie that you didn't have in the Woodstock film is that they're able to interview people now with 50 years later. And so they have uh, Marilyn McCoo and uh, Billy Davis Jr. sitting there in the studio watching themselves 50 years earlier talking about their experience with the fifth dimension, talking about what they were thinking when they were doing this concert. Same thing with Gladys Knight. And it was fantastic yeah. to listen to them, and uh, you know,
0: recommend the film highly. Yeah, and, and also I did enjoy um, all the putting the whole event into a context. Yeah, I enjoyed the bits uh, with uh, John Lindsay. Oh, John Lindsay it was, it was I really enjoyed, fun um, seeing John Lindsay. Who was who was the um, the MC? Tony Lawrence? Was yes, Tony name? Lawrence. But I'm not and familiar he, with him. Okay, well, anyway, he he seemed uh, to invent the whole. Show. Yes, yeah, he put it all together. And uh, managed to well, he got, get the funding for the city. Got the funding from the city. Yeah. And, uh, and that was a great story. Yeah. And he was a great character yeah. and had all these fantastic yeah. costumes. One thing that I
2: didn't get was at one point they said it was the third annual. So it just made me think, well, what did the first two? I,
0: I don't know what that is. I don't know. Well, maybe they weren't filmed. but maybe, this Or maybe uh, they too. weren't substantial.
1: Right. Because a lot of the story was this was new and different.
0: But we recommend it because. Music's great. Yeah, the sound is great. Yeah, I mean, don't go there thinking you're going to hear scratchy yeah. old, uh, right. you know, home movie sound. Yeah, uh, they've really done a beautiful job yeah. with the sound. Uh, the, the story um, is well told. Yeah. It gets a little long. Uh, yeah, I, I will but, say, um,
1: you know, I, yeah. I don't want to to uh, this to take away from the lead, which is that the movie's worth seeing. I thought the last quarter of it. Uh, and when they, when they stopped doing performances and it was, it got a little more discussion-oriented, I thought that was weak. Uh, and I thought that took away from it a little bit, but I would still recommend I think going.
2: what really carries it, though, is the outfits throughout are unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> like the drummer of Sly and the Family Stone. Oh, we Stone should mention Sly and the <laughs> Family wearing Stone. Wearing a right. print suit yeah. with a fringed vest. Right. Like that's unbelievable. One of the few white well, performers, but he's very, wearing a clearly, leopard print vest. It's yes. clearly very hot where they are. Yeah. And every gentleman is wearing a full suit. Right. Yeah. With like several different colors.
1: Often with tuxedo shirts and ties. Yes.
0: Uh, yeah, but there, there were, but there, there was a lot of discussion about. Then there were these other wild costumes that weren't the traditional. Um, Motown suit outfit in, in and how in, things were changing. Yeah, it's yeah. so uh, a time of excellent.
2: transition. They kept that as a yeah. the theme. time of yeah. transition. Everything was changing. Capturing that transition.
0: Right
1: now, but the, just because you mentioned Woodstock, and because a lot of the write-ups are it's picking up on the theme, because it's Questlove's theme, because this is really and it's been called the Black Woodstock. How come this isn't celebrated like Woodstock? This is entirely different. Well, it kind of Woodstock. shows
2: you how it has to function differently to meet this audience. Because with Woodstock, you have people traveling to upstate New York to spend whatever amount of well, time yeah. in the field. This is people in their community right. spending right. a day or two at right. a time, you yeah. know, at this concert. So it's very accessible to them.
1: Right. It's a very different thing. the thing with and Woodstock if they is have had
2: to travel, they probably wouldn't have gone.
1: Right. So right. this is Woodstock was ten times as big as this. So what this is. Each concert has thirty or forty thousand people. Woodstock has four hundred thousand people, and and, but and it wasn't in the middle of Manhattan. No, it but that was a big part of the story. It wasn't just the music; it was the idea that what are you going to do with four hundred thousand people in a field with no services? And if you and the film Woodstock is as much about that as it is about the music. Also, the uh, the Woodstock music um, was quite a bit edgier, quite a bit. I don't know if the word psychedelic, quite a bit. Uh, it was much more political. There was political discussion in this movie, but the music is not political. So, for example, you asked, somebody asked me after this, how come Jimi Hendrix wasn't there? It turns out Jimi Hendrix wanted to be there, and they didn't want Jimi Hendrix. This is in the Times article. Yeah, because they felt he was too controversial. of course, Jimi Hendrix was in Woodstock. But the other kind of people in Woodstock that fit the same bill, Richie Havens is a Woodstock. You don't see that kind of performance here. Um,
2: but on the flip side, this was. Largely church oriented for large. Not largely, events? but that's. Oh, it is different
0: elements. There are some. It, it, it was a family event. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's, it's a were, family event.
1: Were, it's not a political elderly event.
0: Were, a political elderly event. people there. There were children. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, it it, was, you know, it's
1: funny. The guy, there was one, and I don't know this gentleman's name, but he was the first person who speaks and the last person he speaks. He was just described as an attendee. Right.
2: He's the one that he fell in love with one of the women. Marilyn McCoo. He said. Yeah.
1: They, they took a little license there, I think, because it turns out, you know how old he was when he saw the concert? Like
2: three or four. Five. Yeah. yeah. So uh, if he fell yeah, over, he kind of, that's how he kind of said it. He was like, "This is the most beautiful woman I ever saw."
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But uh, yeah, but he was good. But he was good. But but uh, yeah, Woodstock is just a whole different thing. And and of course, they set it up as a film. You know, they had guys making the Woodstock movie. the The assistant director of the Woodstock movie was there during the concert, they're setting up the movie, and that assistant director was. Martin Scorsese. So uh, that's set up for a film. And that's why that's a film. So it's a whole different drill. But having said all that, um, I recommend film. I recommend Summer of Soul.
0: So what I was wondering yeah. was because there were several gospel acts. yeah, And uh, I found myself completely emotional yeah. during the gospel right. music. And uh, I do love gospel music. And I just, I was thinking about why on earth? What did I ever know? How did I ever get on to gospel music? Because certainly the church I grew up in, Warner Memorial Presbyterian, yeah. uh, was, you know, Presbyterians are not famous for, you know, uh, gospel music. No? No. I wouldn't no. know that. But um, you say so, Tamsin. And, and I'm, I'm just wondering, you know, because uh, I... Uh, Remember going to a concert? you remember Babs Butler? Sure. Uh, we worked with in uh, Commons, the right. dining halls at in Princeton. Comments, right. yeah. She was in gospel group at uh, Princeton. So that's the first time I went to the Christmas gospel concert Oh, you've never at seen Princeton. gospel music before that? No. I, well, not really. But you know, you know why I had a taste for it? I right. figured it out. Mrs. Del Vecchio and Mrs. Bailey. Mrs. Del Vecchio was my fourth-grade teacher. Oh, really? She was large and in charge. She had big hair, and she was fabulous, and she played the piano. Oh, really? And she was buddies with Mrs. Bailey, Pat Bailey, who was the choir director... At Warner Memorial, yeah, um, for the children's choir, uh-huh. and she taught us gospel songs. Oh, you're kidding! And I didn't know what the, I didn't know they were gospel, gospel songs. songs or... And uh, but these women, I guess, loved that music and uh, instilled it in us. Well, look, gospel music is very catchy; it's very engaging. I mean,
1: believe me, I didn't hear any gospel music growing up in Long Island, but uh, Ray Charles, you
0: know. That's gospel music, uh, by and large. Right. Well, I'm just reliving my memories. Okay. Well, the Um, church
2: music is interwoven into the whole civil rights movement and the abolition movement way more so than you would see any type of church music being interwoven into like the women's rights movement.
0: Yeah, sure. Oh, that's interesting. That's a good point. So that's like
2: their foundation. And a lot of like the slavery, um, what are they called? spirituals? The The spirituals. Yeah are related to church music. Sure. And a lot of that was, you know, taken right. and well, brought in. They into actually
1: the made projects. that point in the film. Yeah. They said, you know, we had hard times and we got through the hard times with and music.
2: Yeah. The church is the place to congregate. So when they're congregating at the church, they're not only talking about right. the Bible, but they're also talking about the issues that they're right. facing. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, so once you see this, it makes me want to go back and watch uh, "Say Amen" somebody All right. again. Well, that's uh, okay. yes, That's worth saying, and, too. And um, precious Lord card. plays a part in that as well. Uh, okay, so that's what we did yes last tonight. night. Yes. Okay, so
1: we are going to move on. Sadie's going to excuse herself. She has another engagement.
0: So, well, she's got to watch the end of the Met game. I Sadie's going right? to start dinner. Start. Yes. Why don't you
1: start? We'll help you when time comes. Shopping online. Shopping online.
0: Don't do that. All right. All right. So, so we've spent a long time on uh, Summer of Souls. So sure. we'll have to zip through all these other things. Yeah. Uh, do my best. I have a short. Uh, short, yes. A short article on a short elephant. On dwell, dwarf elephants. Yeah. Okay. Um, so it turns out they have found fossils of dwarf elephants in Sicily. Okay, dwarf as in um, elephants that were about six feet tall and uh, like the, the size of a horse. I was just going to say, way. dwarf obviously like a, like a jumbo shrimp. And weighing a ton. Like weighing jumbo a ton. shrimp. They're, okay. they're still pretty big. For um, the, um, their ancestors in that area, yeah. the elephants in that general area, uh, would have been more like 12 feet 40 tons. Yeah. All right, their um, mainland counterparts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so somehow elephants got to sicily yeah we're not sure how Mm -hmm. maybe they swam maybe there was a land bridge because sicily's not too far from you know the rest of italy yeah all right but somehow they got there and then evolved into this smaller elephant uh somewhere between 50 and a hundred and seventy five thousand years ago mm-hmm. and the question is how did that happen and how long did it take and uh, they're able to figure this out with dna mm-hmm. well that's kind of tricky mm-hmm. because in a hot climate it's hard to uh, get usable dna mm-hmm. out of uh, remains that are that old mm-hmm. okay um when they're frozen in the tundra somewhere well maybe the tundra's not frozen i forget how that works um you know, the DNA is preserved. But the, you know, things have gotten so sophisticated now that they are able to extract DNA from these uh, zillion-year-old fossils from Sicily Mm -hmm. and sequence the genome. Does that sound good? Yeah. Uh, So by doing that, they have ascertained that it might have taken as short a time as 1,300 years. Mm -hmm for the elephants essentially to shrink down from 12 feet to 6 feet, mm-hmm. which, you know, in terms of evolution, is a nanosecond, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so that's kind of exciting. Uh, they used all kinds of methodologies to get to this. Um, and another thing that it tells us is uh, they're going to be able to study a lot of other fossils mm-hmm. this way. Uh, we're going to know more and more. We're going to be able to travel... Further and further back in time, mm-hmm. and see what was going on. So that that was kind of fun because uh, yeah. um, you know I used to teach uh, you know paleo art and you know old stone age paleolithic like art, age. and so a lot of it is guesswork because it's you know prehistoric before oh. there was writing. Yes. So before the idea time. that uh, we're going to get more and more information about all that is kind of it was very cool. All right.
1: So the uh, big article in the law this week, oh, who knows, one of the big articles, had to do with uh, the idea that now players are going to be able to profit from their own names.
0: College players. College players.
1: players. College players. Right. And uh, whereas previously um, couldn't do that, previously, uh, you know, that would be a uh, violation of the sort of amateur code and the NCAA would come down on you and you couldn't sell your autograph and you couldn't... uh, sell your own jersey with your own name on it. It was all owned by the teams. Now the individual individual players can. And so the question is, uh, how much does that change things? You hear a lot of talk about it's going to change things in a fundamental way and I won't dwell on it. It won't. I um, mean, it doesn't change anything hardly at all. I mean, how many endorsements do you see now by players on college teams? It's very, very rare. There is the exception that proves the rule. I mean, you would... Uh, Zion Williamson was, was a, a big deal, but... Um, well,
0: I thought there weren't endorsements because they couldn't.
1: No, no, but but it's not like there are endorsements now that, that Duke and North Carolina are making money off of. There's no there's no existing substantial market for this. I know.
0: That, I think there's a lot of internet stuff that can get involved in. Yes,
1: you're right. So what they're getting, they are signing deals now, and the best example was these uh, twin young women who are college basketball players who signed a deal right away for boost mobile. Everyone was very excited. turns out they have a million uh, followers on social media. Uh, so yeah, uh, they're not getting an enormous amount of money. They're getting some money, but are they getting money because they're basketball players or they're getting money because they're attractive young women with a huge uh, social media following? I would tell you it's kind of the latter. Um, I, look, we'll see what we see. But I don't think it changes things in a fundamental way at all. I don't think there's that much money in it. Uh, what you, I've read a couple of articles about it. There's some thought that some college uh, athletes are locally prominent so that there's a market for local products uh, and they could be tapped into you know, supporting a restaurant or supporting something that's, you know means something in Raleigh-Durham or something like that. But look, there are going to be some players who are going to excite people and, but they will be the exception. And they, some people have weighed in. Josh Reddick weighed in. He's a professional NBA player. He was a huge star at Duke. Mm-hmm. And he said, uh, you know, this is really too late for me. I could have really done something with this. Uh, and he's right because he was a big name. Uh, but then he says, on the other hand, I would have just blown the money on Natty Light and Lacoste shirts. <laughs> and then he puts him friend with the collar up at Duke. So there you go. Uh, so I don't know, but here's a big deal. So what this is is a half step to the notion that you can pay and will pay college players. That's really what I think is going on. So um, I think what you're going to see once you uh, have payment payments to college players, uh, you're going to see the end of college basketball. Uh, and this is the reason. You're already seeing the emergence of alternatives to college for 18- and 19-year-olds who are not ready for the NBA. We had mentioned some previous weeks, Overtime Elite, which is a league which is going to pay some real money to some 18- and 19-year-olds. Now there is something that the NBA has developed called the G League Ignite, which is for exceptional 18- and 19-year-olds. And the NBA is going to pay some really high salaries for that, even though it's not really the major league level. You have something called the Professional Collegiate League, which is backed by former Obama administration officials. And they're going to pay up to $150,000 a piece. So you're really seeing these alternatives come to the fore. And now if you're a superstar player who played AAU and dominated, you're 17 years old, you're seven feet tall, you've got some decisions to make. And once, you know, right now the decision is, you know, do you play for college? Maybe that's the conventional virtuous thing to do. It's a well-trodden path. Um, that has a certain appeal. It kind of stands apart. But once you start paying players at college, it doesn't stand apart. And if it doesn't stand apart, then you're just going to go where the most money is. And that's going to be one of these other leagues. So, I, I look, enjoy the NCAA March Madness as long as you can. Uh, but I think that's going to be uh, has a limited future.
0: Okay. Okay. Well, it seems like every article I have today is computer-oriented. I think me too. I actually. cannot think of uh, anyone less suited to uh, these articles than myself. I can. But I'm I'm plowing through, all right? Uh, The next one is peering into the paint. Yeah. And it's uh, using computers to look at Vermeer paintings and Mm. decide whether they're real. Um, There's a couple of paintings, um, I guess, down at the National Gallery that uh, there are some doubts about, uh, you know, just how, whether they are indeed uh, authentic, especially this uh, um, girl with the flute, also girl with the red hat. So they've begun to use um, very sophisticated uh, kinds of um, spectroscopy, reflectance, imaging, spectroscopy mm-hmm. is how I'm choosing to pronounce it. I mean, this goes... That's correct. I mean, yeah. you know, years ago they were using x-rays to look at paintings, which could uh, figure out a few things. Um, and uh, oh. then, uh, you know, um, now we've gotten to the point of this spectra- spectroscopy. 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 yeah, Spectroscopy. And uh, they have a guy at the National Gallery... John K. Delaney is the senior imaging scientist. Uh, He used to uh, um, design cameras for reconnaissance planes, right? So it's like this or, you know, uh, spying on secret uh, operations kind of thing. I mean, this has gotten really sophisticated. And so there's a fun article in uh, the New York Times, Peering into the Paint, and talking about uh, how... Um, Delaney and his sidekick, Catherine Dooley, had been imaging the heck out of these Vermeers uh, with the hopes of um, you know trying to isolate exactly what is going on in the paintings in terms of what paint is being used. They can use this information to ascertain the minerals. They can identify the minerals uh, in the pigments, and know whether these are things that that painter could use. I mean, this is kind of old news. And uh, um, the the article mentions uh, that a few years ago, uh, you know, probably more than a few years ago. This has been going on for a while. The um, National Gallery had them look at uh, the famous Feast of the Gods by Giovanni Bellini. And uh, that was a great story. Um, the, um, the Duke of um, Ferrara, uh, Deste, uh, had decided to have his own private gallery. The theme was, yes, you guessed it, orgies and he wanted all the top painters to contribute a painting so of course he signed on Bellini. Uh, Bellini one of the tops of the time and and, uh, centered around Venice. Bellini famous for Madonnas you know beautiful sacred paintings and here he was supposed to paint Feast of the Gods the gods you know running around with uh, goddesses that they were not married to uh, frolicking in the woods. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's it's kind of a, um, you know, the painting wasn't entirely successful. And I know, you don't want me to tell the whole story. But it, so, uh, Deste has an in-house guy change the painting a little bit, fix it up. And then another guy who's signed up to contribute some paintings, you might have heard of him, Titian, uh, actually gets involved in pimping up uh, Dossi's improvements on the same painting. This was all discovered with this uh, spectroscopy. I was just going to ask you what the connection to the They's, spectroscopy Yeah, is. they use these same techniques yeah. to figure all this out. How yeah. many different layers of painting there were, who did it. Um, so wait, is so it just the cut through? So in other words, there's several
1: layers of the painting and they're seeing the images in each layer? Is that what's going on? Uh,
0: they're not just seeing that; they're able to isolate different facts about uh, the, you know, the different layers. That you know what the pigments are made of. For instance, this is this is fun. This is interesting. Okay. okay. Yeah. Um. Bellini's goddesses, yeah. the, the necklines seem to have changed right. at a certain point. You can tell from the way it's painted, just with the naked eye, yeah. that the necklines got lower right. on the nymphs and goddesses. So it was assumed, because people knew, had this idea that uh, you know Titian and Dossi had stepped right. in, that somebody else had you know right. made uh, this more a little a little more erotically charged. They were able to analyze the pigments and ascertain that Bellini made the, his, those changes himself. They were his paints okay. uh, used in those changes. So the spectroscopy. So anyway, there, there, there's all this fantastic stuff. There, it's not just the spectroscopy, but uh, um, some other methodologies as well, as well that are all very technical, but like the paleontology, are really informing what we. I think we've no, known let me about give you these something paintings, that's really impressive. Uh, forever. Some computer okay? stuff. But let me just tell you. Yeah. About the two paintings they're talking about, the Vermeers? Yes. Yeah. Uh, they're they're still not sure.
1: <laughs> okay. Well, that that puts kind of it was a an
0: interesting article, but it you know, it didn't really make the point. Yeah, that's kind of weird
1: that you go all that and you say but it's not good enough. But let me tell you a much more impressive use of computers and it has to do with baseball, of course. And uh, there's been a controversy with respect to the use of sticky material on pitchers' fingers, uh, spider tack being the uh, brand name of the substance that is now considered verboten. Uh, And the Major League umpires, as directed by the league, are checking pitchers to making sure they're not using verboten substances. Um, Well, it turns out that by use of computers, your friends, we have very precise information of what's been going on and what's changed. Uh, And you're saying, how is that possible? Well, it turns out that they started cracking down at the beginning of the month. And since the beginning of the month, 108,000 pitches have been thrown. And somehow they have been tracking all of these pitches. And what they're able, what they're tracking in particular is spin rate, because spin rate is something that spider tech allows you to increase in a substantial way. And it's an advantage for the pitcher because it creates more ball movement and more angle of the ball movement and gets the batters out. So, cutting through it, here's the deal. Since they started checking this out, the Major League Baseball batting average has gone from 236 to 246 because the pitchers feel they can't use the spider tack anymore, the ball's not spinning as much, and therefore... They're easier to hit. It's changed the game in a fundamental way. From
0: two forty six to two thirty six. Two thirty
1: six to two forty six. It's raised the, the batting average of the. Oh, entire, raised the batting average Okay. Of entirely the Spin rate points. has gone down. Spin rate's gone down. Pitchers easier to hit. Batters are hitting. Uh, not only that, but they're able to isolate per pitcher how much each pitcher has been affected by his inability to use the spider tech. How the spin rate has changed, and it turns out the number one. Uh, You might say offender. Oh, that's a tough word for this. The person who has lost the most because of the inability to use spider tech is Garrett Cole. And Garrett Cole is this big time pitcher in the Yankees. Uh, And and he has been uh, a name that's sort of been associated with the controversy from the beginning. The decline in spin rate for his pitches is substantial. It's down 6.3%. It's most of the major leagues. Well, guess what? He's been terribly unsuccessful his last few starts. And against the Mets today, he lasted three and a third innings, which is the shortest stint he's ever had.
0: But they don't have proof that he used the spider stuff. This is
1: what's called in the business strong circumstantial evidence. And when he was asked about it... He...
0: On, the, on the TV, whenever it's circumstantial, it's not... Uh, no, no, no. no. I, I
1: wouldn't say that's true. And, and when he was asked about it, he did not deny using it. They said, do you use spider tack? He said, you know, that's a pretty complicated question. <laughs>
2: And literally, that's
1: literally what he said. Uh There is a Met on the list who's uh, one of the higher ones in terms of loss of spin rate. It's Marcus Stroman. He pits today. He was not effective. So it's not like the Mets are clean on this. You know who's clean? Jacob deGrom is like the only pitcher in the league whose spin rate has increased since they started clamping Go down. Go, Jacob. On this. It's amazing. They, can, they have all this information. Just amazing. Yeah. Those Mets.
0: They're they honest are. boys. Yes, they are. Um... All right, more computer art. Yes, computer art. That's what we want to hear. Quickly. Yeah. Um, they just uh, rehung uh, the uh, Rembrandt uh, masterpiece, Night Watch, at the Rijksmuseum
2: mm-hmm.
0: uh, to include uh, parts of the painting that were cut off.
1: Yeah. Why were they cut off?
0: They cut off in the so the the painting was painted in sixteen forty two and uh, you know it's a depiction of a militia group all right uh, getting ready for a parade yeah. and um, the um, these paintings uh, the groups uh, these uh, you know civic groups would uh, um, uh, would uh, commission these paintings. Of the group. It, right. it, it was like a group portrait of the soccer team, right? right? And uh, it became popular at this time to have more dynamic paintings. They changed, and that's why we get all excited about this one uh, and others. And they were hung in the town hall. And so when this was uh, rehung in 1715, it didn't fit in the spot they had for it. So they, it was 15 by 13 feet. These are huge paintings. Right. Right. They cut off two feet. Huh. On the left so hand side, cut off a few inches on the right hand side, cut off a few inches on the bottom right. and uh, so um they're not sure exactly what it looked like, but there was a pretty good copy painted um in the seventeenth century by Garrett London's, and uh, they used that as a basis, and they've been able to use a i to kind of recreate um by the they've scanned the painting. Kind of in depth, okay, Uh, and uh, they're able to come up, uh, teach the computer um, how to paint the way Rembrandt did, how to create an image, really, really, Um, and. well, it's called convolutional neural networks. And uh, so anyway, so they've hung it with these added parts. It really changes how the painting looks. It's much more alive. Yeah. Uh, the, um, it looks like the group is walking towards you in a way it it didn't yeah. without those additions on the side that kind of change the context and right. the perspective of it so that's pretty cool again if you read the article about it in the new york times you get all the comments yeah. and people are like oh you know making all these disparaging comments about uh, ai and interfering yeah. with great art and blah 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 but uh, again this is you know more about understanding the art uh mm-hmm. than uh you know oh. um, insisting that you well uh, i think we're running art. through
1: with a computer theme that's uh yeah
0: well you know you may remember that a few years ago i went to the world's most boring art documentary mm-hmm. uh, about uh, hieronymus bosch works a mm-hmm. uh, fascinating concept that you can you know do this sort of uh i don't know high-resolution scans to figure out whether things are authentic or not, whether these paintings are authentic because they can get down to so much detail mm-hmm. in understanding the artist's uh, technique. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was an awful movie. But, uh, you know, this it, uh, just points out that, uh, once again, um, you know, the, you know if, you're, if you're a technology person and you're kind of interested in art, There's a lot of possibilities out there, buddy.
1: All right. Uh, Well, that is interesting. Um, Yeah. yeah. All right. So, you know, there's an article in the Times about um, Joni Mitchell. Joni Mitchell's album called Blue, which might be her best-known album, um, which happens at the 50th year anniversary and is sort of an appreciation. But it's an interesting article because uh, they do interview a lot of folks and they actually go track by track and get their reactions um, to the various songs. And of course, you know, she knew quite a a lot of interesting, famous people. You know, people like uh, James Taylor and Stephen Stills and Judy Collins and that. And there are Shaka Khan, Bonnie Raitt. And they're saying, this song was important for me. This song was this. This song was that. Um, And uh, I know I'm a little bit more of a Joni Mitchell fan uh, than you are. And I'm not even going to say that Blue is my favorite Joni Mitchell album. But, uh, it is, there are some cuts in it that I know you're familiar with. Um, and, uh, it's just a darn interesting article. I don't want to dwell on it. I mean, even Renee Fleming commenting on it, talking about how she was a young girl. She was listening to Joni Mitchell and she thought she was fantastic. Um, there's some really interesting songs. Some I didn't know. Uh, little green is a song apparently about Joni Mitchell giving up her daughter for adoption because she didn't have any money. She was just a poor singer and, uh, I guess her the father had moved on, and she had to give up the child for adoption. Later, later, uh, you know, she found the child.
0: But well, this uh, is a long article. I'm not going to it is a it series anything. of lo- articles, or no? It's I just, mean, it
1: seems to dominate the arts and leisure yeah, section. Yeah, no, it just there's a lot of interesting comments on the various cuts. I mean, one of the uh, one of the songs in it that I know is a song that you like uh, is "River." Yes, uh, "River" is on the Blue album, yeah. and. First, James Taylor says, I think it's a great Christmas song. Uh, and, uh, and I think it is a great Christmas song. I, I think, he
0: has it on his Christmas album. Yeah,
1: and, and, and other people sing it too. It is a fantastic song. Um, but, uh, you know, David Crosby, for example, from Crosby, Stills, Nash, and he says, look, I think it's arguably the best singer-songwriter album ever made. I'm a singer-songwriter, and I was her old man for a year. I think you know what that means, which was daunting but I'm deeply into her music. He says, River, holy, you know, S, I remember the first time I heard it, I felt like quitting the business and becoming a gardener. (laughs) He says, the music is where she's just vastly superior to Dylan. I think Bob's as good a poet as she is, maybe. They're both brilliant poets, but she's 10 times the musician and the singer that he was. And the comments collected on this are very much along uh, those lines. I mean, frankly, even if you confine the comments to the people that were her old man, uh, you'd have quite a few comments because it was half of Corby spilt Nash and Young, and James Taylor, uh, and others. As a matter of fact, one of the things that uh, Judy Collins says uh, is uh, with all those incredible men uh, that she's writing about, many of whom she had affairs with, she beat my list. Uh, so it's just, uh, I don't know, it makes me want to go back and listen to Blue again. I'm sure I will. Okay. Um, and uh I just thought it was a fascinating article and I, I am as I said I, I remain a Joni Mitchell fan uh yeah so you had uh, something about Maryland I know that matters to us because Maryland's
0: important Maryland's summer starts with a shortage of its big attraction oh well,
1: let me mention something real fast there's another song that Joni Mitchell uh, wrote that's not on blue you know what it's called Woodstock uh <laughs> and that, that's another reason that's a popular movie recorded by Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young go ahead I'm sorry
0: uh Maryland yes. summer starts. yeah Shortage of his big attraction, the big blue trend. crab. Yes. So uh, no, nah, I didn't. You know what can you say? Crab has gone up in price. Okay. Right. Is that uh, it? Yeah. Should we move on? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think I don't know if we talked about it in the podcast, but we, we did have an article a couple weeks ago. About lobster going. Lobster, up lobster is up. going yes. up in $30 price. Thirty dollars a pound. So, yeah. So that uh, lobster roll, uh, people are charging astronomical prices for lobster rolls. So now people are charging. Astronomical prices for crab cakes and crab cake uh, sandwich. Um, mm-hmm. This one fellow's charging twenty-four bucks, up from nineteen last year. He says the price he pays is usually around sixteen a pound. It's gone up to thirty-four dollars a so pound. Tell you why okay. Um, part of it is they're just not producing it much, and part of that is they don't have the labor. Ah, how do you like that? And it's not a COVID thing. It's a, um, when Trump put the kibosh on the temporary worker visas, oh, yeah. that affected, uh, they depended heavily on those kind of workers uh, to harvest uh, the okay. crabs. All right. All right. And uh, you know that affects a lot of uh, All right. so um, we summer get jobs. So, so they're hoping this will change. Actually, the... You know, it's been kind of a good year for crabs in the Maryland area, but uh, the um, the fishermen, um, you know, just aren't able to take advantage. They said their kids are not crabbers. Okay. They okay. sent their kids to college. Well, that's what So that they could do something yeah, that's else. Right. That's right. And, uh, you that's know, the way they're short workers. Yeah.
1: Well, listen, sardines are good enough for me, so that doesn't uh, concern me a great deal. So, there was an article, we don't have to dwell on this. I'm from Maryland. Uh, for, i I'm I need the blue crab. Okay. Uh, the, uh, there's a new show that's going to be seen. I think it's Apple Plus, but we'll worry about that later, called Schmigadoon. Schmigadoon being uh, sort of a television musical with, uh, I guess, original songs uh, about some folks who are stuck in a town where everybody's kind of musical comedy oriented. And the result is it's a musical comedy. It sort of does musical comedy with a big wink. It has some very big names because people were looking for something to do. They couldn't be on stage. So they have uh, Kristen Chenoweth. They have uh, Alan Cumming. Uh, They have Aaron Tveit, uh, who, of course, was from Moulin Rouge. Mm -hmm. Um, So these are big names. And uh, it might be fun. There's a show like this every year or so. And they're not always so great. But uh, maybe this will be uh, interesting. Or maybe right. it will be too cute to live. I don't know. Schmigadoon. Schmigadoon, which is a play so, on Brigadoon. Uh, so
0: this is uh, a little bit on the ironic side? or Yeah.
1: it's As I said, it's Broadway musical comedy with a wink, which is
0: kind of bad yeah. because,
1: you know, this kind of stuff usually doesn't work unless you commit to the material. If you're going to be winking the whole time, that's a, and it's you're a tough... you're
0: not sure if you should...
1: Needle the thread. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. All right. And
1: finally, uh, there's an article, uh which has a quote. Somehow, someone, Donald Rumsfeld passed away uh, this week. And uh, a lot of people are Donald Rumsfeld uh, fans. And I'm not setting myself up as a defender of Donald Rumsfeld. But let's not get into that for just a moment. What's interesting is somehow the Wall Street Journal got a hold of a letter that Donald Rumsfeld wrote uh, as a cover letter with his tax return in 2015 Uh, when he was in his early 80s. And the letter says, uh, Dear uh, Sir or Madam, I have sent in our federal income tax returns for 2013, as in prior years, it is important for you to know that I have absolutely no idea whether our tax returns and our tax payments are accurate. I do hope that at some point in my lifetime, and I'm now in my 80s, so there are not many years left, the U.S. government will simplify the U.S. tax code so that those citizens who sincerely want to pay what they should are able to do it right and know that they have done it right. So there you go.
0: I think you might have a lot of support
1: in that thought. <laughs> yeah. It's a kind of a funny thing for a guy who's very much with the establishment, uh, hardly a, uh, a rabble-rouser, uh, to write with his taxes. It's uh, hard to know. And uh, he, I didn't give you the whole quote. He goes on to say, look, I'm college-educated, my wife's college-educated, we think we're relatively... Uh, alton people and yet no idea <laughs> all
0: right so uh,
1: that's all we have which is yeah, quite a bit
0: we got to go celebrate uh Hazzy's first fourth
1: that's right uh he'll be eating burgers uh by the grill or something I like i don't it. think so no i don't think so either
0: all right so this is Tamson Granger and
1: dan have you Tamson
0: and dan read the paper and uh back at you